You hungry this morning? Are you? Yeah, you wait till I show you the picture that I'm going to put up there. Huh? Now let me ask you again, are you hungry this morning? (laughs) Indeed. Well, this morning we're going to serve up a great big porterhouse steak. It's called the Word of God. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 in detail, but Matthew 3, really 13 to the end of the chapter, is a mouthful red meat. And I cannot wait to begin to chew it with you. Follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Whom I am well pleased. Last week, we introduced this passage and said that as we were going through the passage together, that there were basically three details that we wanted to to camp on and, and sort of tease out. Because in doing so, we would understand the significance of this passage and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible event Matthew records for us here in his gospel. Last week, we only got through two of the three details, and so we will return again to the passage this morning for the third detail. And it really, in that sense, is a kind of climactic detail. It all comes down to this third significant detail that we'll look at together. Now, just to get your thinking going, get you back in the In the passage, let's review very, very quickly those two earlier details. The first one being that Jesus arrived from Galilee. Kind of a simple observation out of verse 13 here in chapter 3. Jesus arrived from Galilee. And and we noted last time as we were looking at this detail and, and bringing other gospel accounts alongside of it and kind of harmonizing these gospels and filling in the, the details that that this event, this baptism of Jesus, was the event by which God removed the veil of obscurity under which Jesus had been waiting. That for 30 years, approximately, according to Luke's gospel, that Jesus had remained in relative obscurity, pouring over the scriptures, growing in his his wisdom and understanding and in the grace of God and men. That the man, Jesus Christ, was a man of the word of God. And it was this very event 
that he came to his baptism by which his public ministry of deliverance was launched. Secondly, we noted that he argued with John in verses 14 and 15. John did not want to baptize him, and Jesus prevailed upon him, persuaded him that indeed in order to fulfill all righteousness, that John must baptize and Jesus must be baptized. We noted last time that to fulfill all righteousness carries with it the idea of fulfilling that which God requires. That's what righteousness fundamentally means. And so God was requiring that Jesus be baptized and that John baptize him. And it was implicit in the call of God upon John to do the baptizing. God had called John to be the baptizer of the remnant of Israel. It was incumbent upon Jesus to humble himself and to submit to this baptism, although he had no need of repentance because he was an obedient, faithful, God-fearing Jewish man, and thus he must submit to the ordinance of God and man, which includes John's baptism. And so Jesus was baptized by John. That takes us to the third detail where we will spend our time together this morning. And I, all week long, I have been fired up about this one and cannot wait to begin to spill it out with you. So third, the third detail is that he was anointed with the Spirit. That's the third detail. He was anointed with the Spirit, verses 16 and 17. Now, again, in, in harmonizing the gospel accounts of this significant event, and we said this event carries across all four gospels because it is that important. In harmonizing this event together, we learn from Luke's gospel that Jesus was actually praying when this anointing took place. That is, that he had come up from the water and was praying. And when the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him, and again, Luke tells us, in bodily form like a dove. That is, a dove descended upon Jesus. Mark also indicates for us that it was Jesus who saw the dove descending. It was Jesus who saw the dove descending. Furthermore, Luke tells us, supported by Mark's gospel, that when the voice from heaven spoke, it said this, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, if you are an attentive reader of Matthew's gospel, you will notice immediately that the two accounts are not exactly identical. That there is a a slight difference in picture between what Matthew presents to us and what Luke and Mark in their gospel accounts present to us. Matthew's gospel is indefinite with regard to whether it was John or Jesus who saw the dove in verse 16. The New American Standard handles that by, by rendering the pronoun in, in the, in, in the uh, non-capitalized form that he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And in the margin, they give you the capitalized pronoun he, indicating that the translators of the NASB are not sure whether it was he, that is John, or he, capital H, 
that it was Jesus who saw it. So they leave it open. But Matthew does say that the voice was heard by John. Matthew, verse 17, records it for us, 317, in the third person. In the third person. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Luke and Mark say, you are my beloved son. So there is a pronoun, a difference in pronouns. First person, third person, pronoun. So what's going on? Why the difference? How do we harmonize the difference? I think the answer is that Matthew presents it from John's perspective. Luke and Mark present it from Jesus' perspective. And the reality of the matter is that they both heard it and they both saw it. And that the voice from heaven and the descending of the Spirit of God upon Jesus as a dove was a sign for both John and for Jesus. For John, it, it was the indication that his ministry was now shifting. That his ministry was moving from that of announcement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to introduction. That this is the one. From announcement to introduction. And I think you can see that if you go to the right to John's gospel. John chapter 1, it's worth the trip. So turn over there. John 1 and verse 35. And I don't want John one thirty five, but that's okay. Uh, it's good to be in John one. What I want is uh, John one thirty one. John one thirty one. John says, "I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water." John bore witness, saying, "I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him." And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Then beginning in verse 35 and following, John points out Jesus and says, That's the one. That's the one. That's the one upon whom I saw the Spirit descending as a dove. That's the one about whom I heard the heavenly voice saying, This is my son. This is my beloved son. So it was for John's benefit, back to Matthew 3, and it was for Jesus' benefit. John's benefit and Jesus' benefit. How did it benefit Jesus? How did the descent of the Spirit upon him, which he visibly saw, how did the words coming to him from the Father, which he heard directed directly to him, how did they benefit the God-man? I think the answer to, to try to peer into this is that it was by this event that Jesus now knew the time had come. I argued that last week. I will try to continue to persuade you of that this week. That the man Christ Jesus was a man walking in the power of the Spirit of God. Dependent upon the Father to lead him. And that Jesus himself did not know the exact moment in which his public ministry would begin. 
He clearly knew who he was. But what he did not know was when does it begin? And it was by this event that Jesus himself came to realize that his time of humble waiting upon the Father, for the Father to to reveal the moment that the plan begins, was now. And thus, this descent of the Spirit, this voice out of heaven, was God the Father's sign to God the Son that now is the time. Now is the time. Jesus is to go forth as Messiah. He is to offer himself to Israel as her king. And he is to ultimately die for the sins of the world. Now is the time. Now look again at the way Matthew handles this account, verses 16 and 17. And really two amazing and and significant events. They occur right here, and and Matthew gives us a a textual indicator so that you cannot miss them. And he does so through through the use of the Greek word adieu, but it's translated in the New American Standard, behold, behold. The word means to look, to pay attention, to, to notice something. Heads up, we might say. Or if you were playing golf, I suppose you would say, that's right, four, okay? Four. I don't know what that means, by the way, other than you're about to get hit. But anyway, here we go. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit descending upon him. And verse 17, behold, a voice out of heaven. So there are our two markers. Two amazing events occur right here. Two things that we need to pay attention to. Two things that should catch our eye. Two things that should cause us to stop, slow down, think about. What's going on? It is the descent of the Spirit and it is the voice out of heaven. These are the two things. The descent of the Spirit and the voice out of heaven. So let's unpack that a little bit. And I want to begin in reverse order in verse 17. And I'm calling it that Jesus is endorsed by the Father. Verse 17. The voice out of heaven. Jesus is endorsed by the Father. Behold, look, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, only three times in the, in the ministry of Jesus do the Gospels record a voice out of heaven. There are only three places where the Gospels record a voice out of heaven. They are his baptism, the account here. They are his transfiguration. And they are, according to John chapter 12, at a moment of his pending crucifixion. So it is his baptism, it is his transfiguration, and it is his pending crucifixion. Three times in his public ministry, the Gospels record for us that God spoke directly out of heaven and addressed him. Now, the voice out of heaven was heard clearly by both John and Jesus. Whether it was heard by anybody else or not, we could have a discussion with offline. But it was clearly heard by John and by Jesus. It was the Father's stamp of approval, as we said, upon the life of the God-man. 
The words of the, that the father uses are very interesting. This is my beloved son in whom he says I am well pleased. We find the, the background of this statement in the Old Testament and that shouldn't surprise us. So looking back into Isaiah chapter 42 where we find a background for this statement. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. It will help to unpack what it is the Father's communicating. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Beyond that, turn further to the left to Psalm 2. For there in Psalm 2 and verse 7 fills out the other part of the Father's statement. Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic enthronement psalm. And there in verse 7, it says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we have Isaiah 42 talking about, I put my spirit upon him, this one in whom my soul delights. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we have the statement about the king himself. Turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Let's try to put it together. Isaiah 42 is part of what is known as the servant songs section of Isaiah's gospel. There is a section of Isaiah beginning in chapter 40 and running through chapter 53 in which it is called the servant songs. They speak of Messiah prophetically and they talk about his role as a servant of Yahweh, ultimately the suffering servant of Yahweh, culminating in chapter 53, which is so well known to us, right? The, the great chapter on the sufferings of Christ. And so by this citation early of the, of the servant song that you are my beloved son, right? I have put my spirit upon you. What is being communicated is that Jesus is that suffering servant. He is the one that Isaiah spoke about. And thus he is the one who will ultimately suffer for the sin of his people, according to Isaiah 53. He is, in the words of John the Baptist, recorded in John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back to Matthew. This is my beloved Son. This is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of. This is the one who will ultimately give his life to take away the sin of both my people and the sin of the world. In combination with Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 and its citation of his kingly messianic office, it's speaking of that part of his ministry as well. He is the great messianic king who will suffer and die and take the sin of the world. These are now linked together. 
These concepts are, are linked together and they are, they are linked together in this obedient one. This Jesus of Nazareth. This God-man, Jesus the Christ. We need to notice, by the way, here in Matthew chapter 3, that Father's endorsement of the Son comes after the baptism that fulfills all righteousness. The voice doesn't come before he goes into the water. The voice comes after he comes out of the water. And indeed, the voice comes while he is praying, according to Luke's gospel. While he is praying, while he is contemplating, no doubt, the life that is now laid before him. As he thinks about what it's going to mean to him to fulfill all of what the Word of God has spoken of him from ages past. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is the one being sent forth to accomplish the mission that God the Father has sent him to do. John chapter 17 and verse 4, where Jesus himself prays his high priestly prayer. And he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You gave me a task. And I have accomplished it. Mission accomplished. I have fulfilled all that you set forth for me. The beloved son in whom you are well pleased. Now again, let me stress with you. Jesus was born Messiah. He was born king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 is very clear. The Magi come looking for him who was born what? King of the Jews. Jesus was conscious of that messianic reality from a very early point in his life. Luke's gospel tells us, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, his parents come looking for him. They find him in the temple and he says, didn't you know that I had to be where? In my father's house. I'm not trying to say to you that at the moment of his baptism, the lights go on and he figures out he's Messiah. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is he knew this all along, but here at his baptism, what he now knows is that the mission begins. That which he has been waiting for, that which he has been praying about, that which he has been pouring over the scriptures for, now comes to fulfillment. If we could say it this way, he is ordained to his ministry at this moment. He is now launched publicly as Israel's Messiah. And it is done so by the Father's endorsement. Secondly, verse 16. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is endorsed by the Father, verse 17. He is empowered by the Spirit, verse 16. And after being baptized... Jesus went up immediately from the water. Behold, pay attention. The heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. When the scriptures speak about the heavens being opened or the heavens being torn, it is talking about a vision or, or a, an announcement that comes from God the Father to earth in a very startling way. It is a communication of of something unique, something earth-shattering in significance. And that's exactly what we have here. It is not a -a run-of-a-mill thing. The heavens don't just open up, you know, once a month and we get some kind of a news from heaven. Update, you know, flash, bulletin, boom. They don't open very often at all. And when they do, everybody pays attention. 
So here the heavens are rend, they're torn, they're opened. And an amazing thing happens. The Spirit of God descends visibly as a dove and lands upon Jesus. Now let me dispense with the dove part right away. Why does he descend as a dove? I don't know. Okay? I don't know. And nobody else knows. So there, we've dealt with that. Okay? I mean, you can go, commentators go crazy. Okay? The answer is, we don't know. And nobody else knows. God knows. When you get to be in glory, you can ask. For now, we don't know. But we know it happened. Because the Word of God tells us it happened. And it's an amazing event here. Not only does the Father speak to him, but the Spirit of God himself, third person of the triune Godhead, comes and and descends in a visible form upon Jesus. Now, what's all that about? What's the point? Why is this necessary? What does it contribute to the ministry of Christ? Oh, it contributes a lot, my friends. This is where it really starts to get good. Are you ready? The Spirit's anointing of Messiah is long prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah himself speaks repetitively of the Spirit coming upon Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11. You get used to Isaiah, by the way. We're going to be in and out of Isaiah for as long as it takes us to get through Matthew. You notice I didn't say how long that would be. All right. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and following. Isaiah 11, 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and And the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And by virtue of the spirit of the Lord resting upon this one. He will be empowered. To have wisdom and understanding. And counsel and strength. And he will be able to judge righteously. Among the nations. Isaiah chapter 61. And verse 1. Isaiah 61. And verse 1. Isaiah 61. 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now Messiah speaking in the first person. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop right there. Now, how do you know that I'm not just making this stuff up? Just kind of searching around in the Old Testament until I find things, that, passages that agree with my point. Well, the answer is that Jesus himself applies these texts. If you go to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, just see this. The reason you need to see this is because this is so cool. 
I love the Word of God. Absolutely. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Notice the chronology. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the chronology, this occurs right after the 40-day temptation, which occurred right after the baptism. Okay, so we're linking things. And Jesus returned to Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, back to hometown. You know, hometown boy makes good. And when he had... And when he had been brought, where he had been brought up, and, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and, and he stood up to read. And the book, or the scroll that the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Jesus looked for this place in the Isaiah scroll. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. I am the anointed one. I am the one of whom the prophet spoke. That the spirit of the Lord would descend upon me. That the spirit of the Lord would anoint me. And he would anoint me to fulfill the great messianic mission. Which is the deliverance of my people. Listen to me. In his deity... In his deity, the God-man lacked nothing. Nothing. But in his humanity, it was the Spirit's anointing that provided all that was necessary for him to fulfill his mission. It was the Spirit's anointing that provided the supernatural power, the enablement that was required for Jesus, the God-man, to live out his life is the Messiah, Israel's deliverer king. It's a mystery. It's an impenetrable mystery. It's a mystery that will absorb you in your pondering for the rest of your days, fall down on your knees in the presence of the God-man. Listen to the way Bruce Ware writes of this event. He writes, and I quote, Jesus in his humanity relied on the Spirit to provide the power, grace, knowledge, wisdom, direction, and enablement he needed moment by moment and day by day to fulfill the mission the Father sent him to accomplish. He was the the prototypical man who walks in the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit anointed him at his baptism, and by that Spirit anointing, he was empowered and enabled to fulfill the mission that he had come forth to do. In his deity, lacking nothing. In his humanity, entirely dependent upon the Spirit of God. 
My friends, it is the, it is the anointing of the Spirit of God upon him that enabled him to do the miracles he did. Matthew chapter 28. Or excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Matthew 12 and verse 28. Jesus says to them, the leaders of Israel, he says, but if I cast out demons, how? By the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter writes, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There is one deliverer between God and man, the mediator, rather, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ. Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. And he is the one who walks in the anointing of the Spirit of God. But it wasn't just for wisdom. It wasn't just for miracle working power. That was not the only purpose of the Spirit's anointing. And this is where it gets cooler still. We kind of go down another level. Wisdom and power are part of and this is, this is where Alvin McLean is so, so insightful in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Let me just, this is my advertisement, okay? Advertisement, here it goes. Sell your shirt and buy the book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Buy it. And then when you buy it, read it. It is 600 pages long. It has no pictures and the font is small. It will absolutely change the way you read the Word of God. It will blow it wide open for you. You will begin to see connections and pieces that you could not see before, that you did not see before, and you will get so fired up that here we go. It is the anointing of the Spirit of God that is the means by which God certified and enabled Jesus to fulfill His role as Israel's King. His kingly role. Now, McLean calls it the theocratic anointing. The theocratic anointing. And this theocratic anointing, this spirit anointing, was necessary for Jesus to fulfill his role as the king of Israel. In order to be recognized by God as the king of Israel, Jesus has to have this anointing. Those that had preceded him had it. He must have it too. Again, I'm indebted to my friend, Dr. Doug Bookman, where he writes, and I quote, the theocratic anointing was the means by which Jesus, in his kenosis, that is, in in his, his humbling of himself to take to himself human flesh, in his kenosis was equipped to set out on the mission he had been given to offer the kingdom to the nation of Israel. It was the theocratic anointing. It was the anointing of the Spirit of God that the prophets had long foretold. Without this anointing, Jesus could not fulfill the mission that he had come to do. McLean further says in in writing about this anointing that there are three things that should be noted about the coming of the Spirit upon the great leaders of the historic kingdom. Here they are. First, 
that the, in the past, in the Old Testament, the coming of the Spirit of God to anoint the leader of the nation, that that person wasn't always of the highest moral caliber. Not always of the highest moral character. Secondly, in certain cases, the, the outstanding effect of the Spirit's anointing of the, of the leader of the nation was primarily physical. It, it had a physical manifestation and outworking. Third, and the most important, is that it has to do with a regal function. In order to stand as a mediator and leader of the government of Israel, they had to have the theocratic anointing. They had to have the anointing of the Spirit of God upon them. Now, that's a big thesis. Is there any evidence? The answer is there is all kinds of evidence. This is one of the most significant, my opinion, ministries of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. It is the theocratic anointing. It is to set aside the leader of the nation. And the, and the Jews, steeped in their Old Testament, would be intimately aware of this. And in fact, without this certification, Jesus would neither be empowered nor would he be certified to be their Messiah King. We need to move quickly. We're going to have to look at some scriptures, a lot of them, and we're going to have to look at them really quickly. So let's start with Moses. Let's begin with Moses. The theocratic anointing of Moses. The coming of the Spirit upon Moses. I'm going to turn you to Exodus chapter 3. What we're tracing is this anointing of the Spirit, the theocratic anointing of the Spirit of God upon the individual leaders of Israel and how it moved from leader to leader, generation to generation. And so the expectation would be that when Jesus comes as the final and ultimate leader, he too must have the anointing. It begins with with Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 and following. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses is to be the leader of Israel. In order to be the leader of Israel, Moses is a nobody. He's in the backwater of Midian. He's tending a few sheep. And he is being snatched out of obscurity to be made the leader of the nation of Israel. And he says, I am not qualified. I don't have any kind of of gifting or abilities to lead two million people out of captivity and bondage. And God says, I will take care of it. I will give you the power you need to do the wonders and the miracles and the signs and and, and the administrative wisdom to lead this great people. How do I know that's true? Because when I get to Numbers chapter 11, and that's where I want you to go, is Numbers 11... When the task for Moses is so overwhelming to lead two million people that he's, he's ready to crack under the pressure, he's, he's about ready to lose it all. And God says to him, Numbers 11 and verse 17, Moses, I will raise up others to help you. 
Verse 17, then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you shall not bear it alone. Verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and he took the spirit that was upon him, that is Moses, and placed him upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and they did not do it again. The anointing of the Spirit of God, the theocratic anointing, was was shared from Moses with the 70 elders to help him carry the weight of this great people. The end of Moses' life, Joshua, Deuteronomy 34, receives the theocratic anointing. Joshua 34 and verse 9. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. By the way, that's the exact same expression that Isaiah uses in in chapter 11, verse 2, the spirit of wisdom that is said to come upon Messiah. Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the leadership of the nation is transferred to Joshua. Joshua receives the theocratic anointing of the spirit. We move into the period of the Judges. Judges chapter 3, verse 10. Helps if I get to the right book. I'm looking at Joshua 3 and I'm thinking, that doesn't say what I want. Judges 3. There we go. Judges 3. This is Othniel. The reason that uh, we point out Othniel to you is it's a really cool name. Beyond that, it's important because that would be a great grandson's name. The other reason that it's really important is because Othniel is the beginning of the, the 12 judges who lead the people. So he's the first in line. So, And I don't have time enough to, to walk through all the judges with you. I'm sorry. You can kind of do that on your own. But if it's true of Othniel, it's true of all those that follow. So here it is. Verse 10, chapter 3. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that is Othniel, the end of verse 9, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. That's also a nice name, but not for my grandson. Okay? <laughs> so that one I don't like. Poor kid would get beat up with a name like that. All right. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel to anoint him to lead the people during the period of the judges. I don't know what, uh, what are we showing up here for slides? Okay, fire up these next ones. Gideon, you can write these down, look them up on your own. I'm not going to turn there with you. But Gideon, Judges chapter 6, verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon in order to be the judge and to lead the nation. Jephthah, Judges 11, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. He is anointed to lead his people. Samson, according to Judges 13.25 and following, is, receives the theocratic anointing that he might lead the nation. He might lead his people. And then we arrive at Saul. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 6. This will straighten out some of your pneumatology in the Old Testament when you're trying to figure out what's going on here. 
1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord came, uh, will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what, shall, what you should do. Verse 9, Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. And when he came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. Now, Saul is the first king of the nation. Saul is also a doofus. Okay? Earlier, Saul is introduced in the text as a young man who can't even find his father's donkeys. He's, he lost the donkeys, and he doesn't know where to find them. Furthermore, he is so timid that he is unwilling to go to the prophet Samuel to ask for help to find the donkeys until his servant says, we need to make an offering to him. Hey, I've got some money. I'll, I'll contribute to the offering. Let's go ask the seer, the prophet Samuel, where are the donkeys? This is Saul. When it comes time for him to, to be crowned king, to, proclaim, proclaimed, to be proclaimed king of the nation, Saul is hiding, hiding. Okay, so here's Saul, a guy who can't find the family mule, who's afraid to go to the prophet, who's hiding when it's time to put the crown on him, who the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he is changed into another man, a man who now can unite 12 tribes that, according to the book of Judges, have been at each other's throats for over 300 years. And he is to forge them, he's to weld them into a single nation. And he is, to, he is to lead them. And this is a guy who never grew up in the court. He did, his daddy wasn't king. He had nobody to show him, to teach him, how do I do this? And yet when the Spirit of God comes upon this man, he is able to perform this incredible feat. But later... Later, he, he is disobedient to God, isn't he? And the anointing is removed from him. And when the, when the theocratic anointing is removed from Saul, he becomes insane and he becomes incompetent. Until finally, he leads the entire army against the Philistines and they are wiped out, they are massacred. And thus ends the ignoble reign of Saul, the first king of Israel. But fortunately, David had received a theocratic anointing before this. Isn't this true? Chapter 16, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16. And verse 13. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This, the him, is David. And David is about 15 or 16 years old at this time. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, an evil spirit terrorized him, and Saul became, as I said, insane and incompetent. He went back to being a doofus, but this time a demented doofus. David is now the anointed king. 
David bears the theocratic anointing. It is David who now has to rebuild the nation. The armies have been destroyed. The homeland has been overrun by the Philistines. The capital has actually been moved to the east of the Jordan River because they're so terrified by them. And it is David who beats the Philistines back. It is David who extends the borders of the kingdom. It is David who organizes the temple and the administration of the kingdom. It is David who raises the standing army. It is David who draws up the plans for the great temple. It is David who does all of these things. And it is David by virtue of the theocratic anointing. David himself wasn't there when Samuel first came, right? Samuel comes to to go through the sons of Jesse and David doesn't even show up. He's just a kid. And, And not only is he just a kid, but I think David is a timid man too. A servant could have watched the sheep, David. You could have been there. You are a son of Jesse. And yet David himself is hiding out and won't come until they summons him. And David becomes the great king of Israel, the warrior king. We should not think of him as this powerful man. We should think of him as one who bore the theocratic anointing. My friends, I'm convinced that's why in Psalm 51, listen to me, in Psalm 51, after his, his incredible fall into wickedness with Bathsheba and, the, and arranging the execution of her husband Uriah, That's why David calls out in Psalm 51 and verse 11, do not take your spirit from me. David knows what will happen to him. He knows what will happen to the Davidic dynasty. He knows what will happen to the nation if God withdraws the theocratic anointing from him because of his sin, as he had withdrawn it from Saul. And so David pleads with God. This is not about David afraid to lose his salvation. This is about David afraid to lose the anointing that enables him to be Israel's king. Theocratic anointing comes upon Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings 3, beginning in verse 7. Solomon prays, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for the multitude. God, I am not sufficient for this task. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it was pleasing in the sight of God. And Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor asked riches for yourselves, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. Same kinds of language of the spiritual of the anointing of the spirit so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall be one like you to arise after you. And we find in the rule of Solomon, of course, that God had indeed given this man the theocratic anointing that enabled him to carry Israel to her heights of glory. 
Israel never again has achieved such height of glory as she had under Solomon's reign, and she will not again until the greater son of David, Christ himself, sits upon his throne in the millennium and the glory of Israel is on display again. My friends, it is the working of the Spirit of God in the lives of these men that enable them to transcend that which is merely pedestrian and normal and to grow to a greatness that is unforeseen and unachievable in human strength. Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, I won't turn you there. Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 is a low point. It is a low point in the history of the nation. For there in chapters 8 through 11, what we see is the Spirit of God reluctantly leaving the temple, leaving the Holy of Holies, abandoning the nation. And it's, and it's in a series. It's almost like the Spirit moves away and, and pauses and looks back over his shoulder, as it were, longing to be there, but knowing he must leave because of the wickedness of the nation. And so eventually the Spirit of God is gone. The theocratic anointing has left. The nation spirals downward and remains under the boot of the Gentiles in the time of the Gentiles from that point forward. Until now, according to Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, turn your way back there. Now, the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is close by. It is here in the person of that one who, the one upon whom the Spirit of God falls in the theocratic anointing, symbolized for all to see as a dove that comes upon him. The voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son. This is the anointed one. In him I am well pleased. And now he is ready to take his throne. Oh, how could the nation be so blind? How could the nation be so blind? How could they turn their back upon that which was so clear? How can we be so blind? How can we be so blind? How can we turn our back on that which is so clear? Some of you here this morning... The evidence is there, and yet you will not believe. Your hearts are hard. You have fingers in your ears, your eyes are closed. You will not believe. Oh, I plead with you, as God pled with his ancient people, repent and turn to Christ, for he will save you. He is the anointed one. He is the great and messianic king. It is he who gave himself for you. Will you not receive him? Will you not receive him? The nation turned their back. They rejected God's gift to them. They said, we have no king but Caesar. Away with this man. But someday, someday the prophet says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will mouth the words of Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, forsaken, and yet he was chastised for our iniquities. The guilt of our sin was poured upon him. Someday, in faith, they will receive their king. Today is the day for you to by faith to receive your king. Let's pray.
Father, we, we ask for your spirit to apply his word to our hearts. Remove the blinders, O Lord, and stop our foolish deaf ears. Let us see and let us believe. Let us humble our hearts in the presence of the King. Thank you for sending Christ. And thank you for his willing sacrifice that he might purchase our redemption. Oh, let our worship sound forth in praise of this great one. Amen and amen.